Hello, this is FTW with Ahmad Khan, part of the .esports podcast network. I'm Ahmad Khan of Tom's Guide. Last week, China passed a series of measures aimed at curbing the country's current social trajectory. This included banning effeminate-sounding men from television and celebrity listicles. This is for what President Xi Jinping called a, quote, national rejuvenation, exacting more communist ideals within the populace. It also suggests that it's a pushback against pop culture capitalism that presents a kind of monoculture between countries. What this means is tighter control of businesses, education, culture, and religion. Among the changes was a restriction on gaming for children under the age of 18. Kids are now limited to one hour of gaming on weekends and holidays between 8 and 9 p.m. This is meant to protect the physical and mental health of minors and combat gaming addiction. Obviously, there's a lot to discuss. Joining me today is Dr. Hugh Davies, a postdoctoral fellow at RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. Dr. Davies has studied China and has written about video games in the Asia-Pacific region. Dr. Davies, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, thank you very much for having me. So, Dr. Davies, there's, like I said, a ton to discuss, but you know, let's take a step back. And for Americans or people in the West who aren't maybe familiar with uh, these types of laws that come out of China, uh, can you explain what the heck is going on? <laughs> uh, sure, I'll try. I mean, look, this is the latest in um, a series of strategies to, to stem the excesses of youth gaming in China and sort of gaming more, uh, more broadly. In 2018, there was a publishing ban freezing all new releases for, for nine months. In 2019, there were game curfews restricting gameplay at night for under 18s. Uh, there's been other rules and regulations, and a lot of them much more severe, like, you know, the 15-year console ban from 2000 until 2014-15, and even military treatment centres to cure gaming addictions. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a history of, of fairly strict restrictions uh, of gaming within China. That said... I'm still pretty sure that loopholes will be found with this one, uh, just as there were with the others. And, and I think that Chinese kids have kind of got the innovation skills to find those loopholes. Explain some of those past loopholes. Let's start with the 2018 publishing uh, freeze, which like <clears throat> I have a lot to do with um, uh, the independent gaming scene in China and Australia. And um it was very interesting at that time to see how um, that community was dealing with the publishing ban. And, I mean, they were actually really kind of responsive. They were using Steam a lot um, and publishing um, through that platform, which is strictly speaking banned in China, but it was a bit of a grey area. Uh, which is to say, like the console ban, there was a strict game on, on um, consoles at the beginning of the millennium. But there's sort of like a big grey market where a lot of consoles were still coming into the country. And, um, and the same thing has been happening up with Steam up until now. Mm. Um, but Steam is now officially launched in China. And this may actually be a closing of that loophole because, of course, the way that... Um, the way that these um, regulations take place is that the onus goes straight to the game companies to enforce the regulation. I personally cannot read Chinese and I'm not on Weibo reading some of the reactions that are happening around these new measures. I mean, what is the reaction inside China? 
Uh, well, I have to confess, I don't um, speak or read very much Chinese either, but I am in pretty close <laughs> contact with a community of people in mainland China, uh, particularly sort of Shenzhen, Shanghai, and um, mm -hmm. Beijing, and the independent game developers in those in those cities. Um, in some ways, it's still a little bit early to know exactly what the reaction is. Most of the the comments that people have have made have been talking about other people's reactions, if that makes sense. Which is to say, um, uh, the people that I've spoken to have mentioned. Um, there's actually a lot of parents who really like this. Um, and I guess that it's it's really important to see these uh, restrictions within a much broader strategy of um, of sort of social and cultural shaping in China, which which you, you mentioned at the outset. And a part of that shaping is um, really... Uh, a lot of emphasis on the youth, on the next generation. And I think that there's been some genuine concerns and some moral panic about kids being on the internet and playing video games and that kind of thing. And, uh, and I, I guess game, game addiction and spiritual opium are terms that get thrown around a little bit. Um, and so I think that that's definitely part of the context. But what gets glossed over in some of those... Um, in some of that rhetoric, I suppose, is kind of like the uh, traditional and family values, which have always been like a, a strong part of mainland China. And and uh, the country wants to sort of retain a lot of that. And the other thing is, I mean, you know, there's, there's really quite um, uh, brutal exam regimes that happen in the Chinese schooling system. And in fact, across the... Um, Asian schooling system and across the schooling system globally, whereby like, you know, there's a lot of pressure on kids in sort of like uh, financially demanding um, markets and conditions that we're all experiencing where kids really need to do well to get into good universities and to guarantee good jobs and games are seen as a distraction from that. And so, so are some of these other um, uh, pop cultural traits. You know, I think it's surprising that uh, the restriction specifically says on weekends between 8 and 9 p.m. I mean, is it even possible to have that fine and granular control over people's personal habits? I think this is a really key question. And um, I think in terms of personal habits, I mean, uh, I would suspect so uh, at a person-to-person at a -person level. I mean, we're talking about over a billion people, so... It's pretty hard to make that assertion, but I do think that um, uh, Chinese people have been pretty resilient towards government uh, restrictions. I'm probably more curious about the technical restrictions of like, if you've got a quarter to a half a billion people logging on to play um, <laughs> at once, um, I'm curious to see how that plays out. And, uh, and, and that's something that a few people have mentioned, what the what the technological infrastructure implications of this new um, ban will be. And, and, you know, maybe that is also um, part of the restriction is, is, is that, you know, like people won't be able to get online all at the same time and, and that, will, that will further slow the play. You know, I, I, this is all kind of predicated on online gaming, correct? So, I mean, couldn't a kid just plug in their old 
Nintendo system <laughs> and you know, that doesn't have an internet connection and just play as much as they want? Yeah, they, they could. That said, um, China is, is a uh, mobile gaming is vastly dominant in China. Um, mm. So to have something like a, a Nintendo or a PlayStation or something like that is is a little bit exotic and, and potentially sort of even a bit like retro or, or whatever. It's a lot of the people that I know have them as sort of like you know shelf pieces, things you put on your mantelpiece. It's like oh yeah, I've got this, um, and people still play them and stuff. But um, uh, the kind of MMO gaming is 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 pretty cornerstone in China as it is in a lot of other places. And I guess, you know, that's, I have to say as well, I mean, I, I have kind of like measured support for this or measured agreement with some of these rules. In And when I say that, I, I, I say it in terms of a lot of the games that they're, they're trying to um, taper down on are sort of like quite, quite predatory in terms of the amount of time they invite people to spend and, and micropayments and loot boxes on one thing and another. Now, having said that, I also really think that uh, games and video game spaces are actually really important social and creative spaces for kids and, I mean, for adults as well. And social and community play is crucial for, for children to grow and for people to form relationships, children and adults, and, and to understand the world and, and other people in it. So... I guess I have mixed feelings about it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we're in the West where uh, maybe Europe or even the United States has taken uh, maybe baby steps towards trying to coax video game companies to be less, you know, microtransaction heavy or uh, less predatory. Uh, I think that just shows kind of the authoritarian might of a country like China that can just almost at a snap of a finger just make a huge sweeping change. Yes. And, um, and that is something that, um, uh, uh, to a certain extent, I think the Chinese government does, uh, I don't know if these are the right words, but sort of almost pride itself on, which is to say, you know, like it is, it is very much um, a country and a government that seeks to uh, shape and reform its, its own population. And um, and something that you know that I hear a bit in some of the kind of academic conferences that um, uh, that I attend in terms of in terms of digital China is is China really trying to assert its digital sovereignty, which is to say you know like um, borders national borders are incredibly porous when you have the internet and obviously China has tried to restrict that with the Great Firewall. And um, and in doing so, it's really tried to um, keep its uh, its digital sovereignty, and it is concerned that um, whether it be American or European or sort of Western or just outside culture influences Chinese uh, habits and culture and traditions. Um, that's something that they that that China really is concerned about. And I mean, it's not just the government. I mean, that's something that uh, the Chinese people also also express some concern about, I think. Well, there is one thing. My dad has been on this uh, YouTube video rabbit hole watching uh, the Chinese government just 
build bridges and skyscrapers in a matter of weeks. Well, <laughs> I guess, you know, in the U.S. can take uh, years to do. Um, so there's definitely an appreciation for that level of efficiency. But, you know, I do want to get into the esports side of, of this. And, you know, getting China is already one of the most fearsome competitors in games like League of Legends, Overwatch, and many others. Um, and But to get to this level, its players need to start young and practice, you know, vigorously. Uh, and with this restriction, I, I can only see this as a huge negative for the esports scene in China. Maybe not now where there's already an established base of competitive players, but once they retire, uh, there, a new pool of talent might not be there. I mean, to what extent do you feel I'm right about this? I think you raise a really interesting question. First, I have to provide the caveat that I'm, I'm not an esports expert, but I, I mm -hmm. do have some insight into esports in China. And it's a very interesting, a very kind of interesting domain in that at one level, China uh, does sort of tenuously promote esports in terms of, how do I put it, maybe national excellence, national sort of sporting excellence. But um, on the flip side, um, the Chinese government does have very strict regulation of games. And, you know, this is obviously something that is being updated and reviewed on a pretty regular basis. So I think it does have the potential to impact Chinese esports. But I'm curious to know how this will all be rolled out and managed, which is to say, you know, you may have a situation where... Um, Esports becomes like sort of other Olympic competitive events, whereas instead of everybody, um, you know, practicing javelin or uh, or running or whatever, you have sort of a few key people that shine out, and those people become targeted and trained and um, really sort of siloed into these esport industries. Um, so yeah, I, I think in that regard potentially being a little bit closer to um, other sort of what they call sporting excellence, like uh, Olympic sports, sports people, if that makes sense. You know, the LDL or the League of Legends Development League, which is, you know, the, the second tier league in China for League of Legends, has already put a restriction on players under 18 from competing. And to maybe some players in the West, this might seem, you know, very foreign that the governing body was so quick to abide by these rule changes. I mean, why don't industries in China generally protest some of these sweeping changes? Oh, look, I, I, I don't think that they have the, um, the power to do so. I mean, this is, um, this is, um, this is often sort of difficult to comprehend through Western eyes. Um, I suppose you know we 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 live in 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 um, um, capitalist democracies or or, or, or um, democratic sort of market driven economies, and right. it seems very foreign to us when uh, a government can severely clip the wings of a highly successful. Uh, commercial industry, as, as happens in China. I was very struck by this. Uh, I, vi I was in China in um, uh, 2018, and we visited um, Tencent, and this was during their their game span. And, and I mean, you know, this is like a multi-billion-dollar company that was that was hemorrhaging uh, money. It, it, it couldn't work out how to appease the government, 
and mm-hmm. um, and you know this was um, this this ban went on for months and they and they lost billions and billions of dollars and it's it's interesting now with um, to see ten cent you know which is one of I'm not sure if it's still the most profitable games company in the world. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if it were. I know it was. I think it was perhaps in 2017. Then it got hit by the global game, the um, publishing ban, the, the Chinese mm-hmm. publishing ban. I feel like it might have gone up since then, but I, I just don't know uh, where things stand at the moment. Suffice to say, it's it's two or three probably, if it's not number one. But um, you know, ten cent. I think like uh, in August donated. Uh, I think it was 50 billion yuan, which um, that I think that's like seven or eight billion US dollars, which they um, basically uh, donated um, towards sort of uh, causes like there's a there's a um, a new regulation which has come in to try and um, even out wealth disparity in China, and so as part of that, uh, Tencent. Announced that it was going to donate a billion, uh, fifty billion yuan, for for social programs, um, which yeah, as I say, is like seven or eight billion US. Now, it's difficult to sort of imagine Google doing something like that, or the American government bringing in a law saying that they were going to get rid of billionaires or or trillionaires. Um, so. It is difficult to understand what's happening in China through Westernize in, in those regards, I guess. Um, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if that makes sense at all, but I, I think that's, that's a large part of what is going on is that um, uh, China is, uh, the Chinese government is, is asserting itself culturally. I mean, yeah. I mean, have you have we heard of from Jack Ma in like the last few years? I, yeah, I mean, he's been missing. There was I also read that a very prominent Chinese actress who was. Um, in this very popular serialized drama back in the day, she's essentially in exile in the UK, and her name and likeness has been stripped from most of Chinese media. Yeah, yeah. No, this is, um, I don't know, kind of Chinese cancel culture, which um, comes from the top down uh, as opposed to the bottom up like it does here, uh, or in the West, I should say. But, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's just an interesting reminder. We forget sometimes that... Um, uh, China isn't democratic, and it's sort of socialist communist, and that means that capitalism isn't import- important in China. Um, they're much less interested in companies making a lot of money than they are about uh, social reform, and uh, and that social reform is not individual. Like everything in China, it's collective, not individual. And these these things are, they don't translate so well into Western culture, and um, and so regulations like this uh, really are difficult to understand. Well, you know, one thing I can say about uh, China, whether it be writers, authors, um, musicians, or directors, is there. I always feel like they find a way to still tell their message while not angering the the CCP. I couldn't agree more. And I have to say that has been my um, constant interest in China is the um, radical creativity, 
look at the independent games coming out of Shanghai at the moment. A lot of them are on Steam. A lot of them are on um, other places, but um, really just groundbreaking stuff. And I mean, you know, that the independent scene is is less than a decade old in in mainland China. You know, it really kind of comes into being in around sort of 2013, 2014. There's whispers and rumours of it uh, uh, bubbling well before that, well into the, uh, in fact, the 80s and 90s. But in in 2014, it, it really sort of bubbles up with a storm and it's the, the creativity in that community is just astounding. And, um, and the same can be said of art communities and literature communities, as you say, but... Um, of course, games is, is, is my forte, my interest. Well, I suspect that, at least for the time being, China will still be very competitive in esports. Um, if it will remain competitive, I guess, remains to be seen. And I do suspect that maybe China Chinese teams might be more willing to bring on Korean or foreign players onto its teams. But with that, Dr. Davies, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thank you very much, too. And that was FTW with Ahmad Khan, part of the Dot .esports podcast network. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and share. For full transcripts of the show, head on over to ftwamad.com. To find me and my work over at Tom's Guide, you can find me at Ahmad on Twitter. This episode was produced by Henrique Demore and Jacob Wolf. Executive producer is Kevin Morris. With that, we'll catch you guys next week.